Broadsheet Radio. of shared history reach out and touch some history reach out and touch history da, 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 da. Uh, i i would love to if it was only a tangible thing is it not i mean it can be uh, most history that i would say you can touch you shouldn't touch because they put it behind glass that is fair. Or velvet ropes. Ooh, a fancy velvet rope. Ooh, fancy history. I saw something on the internet the other day. It was probably like a fucking TikTok or something, let's be honest. That was <laughs> a, uh, uh, which I want to make very clear. I'm a millennial, which means I don't watch TikToks on TikToks on TikTok. I watch TikToks on Instagram. Oh my God. I hate when I say, I saw a TikTok the other day on Instagram. I always want everyone to know I watch it on Instagram. So everyone knows how old I am. So everyone knows how old I am and that my phone is safe from the surveillance state. <laughs> uh, but this TikTok was something about the Mona Lisa uh, and there and it was just somebody saying like if you go if you go to if you go to the Louvre and you're injured, you get a, basically a private viewing because this person I don't was in like a cast or something and so everyone else was being kind of held back away from them while they looked at it and I was like this is this amuses me because I've been to the Louvre I saw the Mona Lisa from afar I mostly wasn't I wasn't underwhelmed by the majesty of art I was overwhelmed at how many people were just at the Louvre to take a picture of the Mona Lisa and be like look I saw it and then move on with their life that's what that's where I was do you know what I think the Funniest, coolest, I don't know. Because I've seen, I've been to the Louvre and I've seen the Mona Lisa and... Listeners, we're cultured. Mm, culture bitches. Um, it's so, I never understood the Mona Lisa, even before I like knew what it was. She's not smiling, she's just like staring and I don't know enough about art to know why this is impressive. And they make it seem like it's a, you know, portrait size, but it's just like a little, you know, small... And the coolest, largest, most impressive and intimidating painting is on the other side. The wedding at Cana is this huge, like 20 foot, beautiful tapestry painting. I felt the same way. And like everyone's crowded around this tiny little thing. I was like, I'm not fucking, I, I lifted, I lifted my digital camera up over my head, snapped a blurry picture, didn't get anything, and then spent the rest of the time staring at this huge painting that is so cool. I lifted my cyber shot, my cannon. <laughs> but also, it's the wedding at Cana, so it's just people like drunk and partying, and I'm like, damn Jesus, you rule. <laughs> relate to this piece of art yeah, all, all, everything also just outside of that same hall uh is also um like amazing and huge and like the colors and like the the shading and like the dark 
that whole hallway is like it's like greatest hits throughout time and then like you're walking into the mona lisa room and you're getting like all i want for christmas like yes a great song a banger but like we've got fucking mary Billie jean oh. Oh. we've got you know we've got <laughs> i was doing a music reference i don't know doing a music reference but i stayed in the lane of christmas music so i just named the first song i thought of which was mary did you know for some <laughs> We've got the Beatles, we've got Michael, we've got fucking Bones, everybody. And then it's like a great song. Yeah, but like, are we gonna not hang out in the hallway with a bunch of jams for one bop that's fun once a year? Yeah. We, we have the and the rest of Mariah's catalog on the other side of the room. On the other side oh. of the wall! <laughs> Yeah, literally throw all the rest of Mariah over there. Oh God. Um, my favorite thing this that I that we at the Louvre, like one of my favorite things, we we started in like sculptures and statues because that's where my heart lies. But when we were trying to get to the Mona Lisa, I think because my sister in law really wanted to see it, and obviously like we were at the Louvre, so we were gonna go fucking see it. Right. We yeah. We weren't near it. Uh, we we. We're trying to avoid crowds. It was just before Christmas. We were trying to avoid crowds and stuff. And, and so if we like approached a corridor or like a, a vestibule and it was very packed, we would go a different way or go the path of least resistance. So we, we just like turned a corner and wound up surrounded by like the foundational ruins of the castle or like uh, the keep that used to be in the pool that... And where I'm like, this is cooler. Yeah. This is the this is the foundation of this is so much cooler. Well, they say like the entire Louvre, like it takes a week at least to see everything in there. Like an act like seven actual days or like two weeks to see everything in the Louvre. And most of the time people go for part of one day while they're there on a trip. And so they're all hitting you know, Mona Lisa, Wing Victory, all, you know, again, greatest hits. hits. Um, and yeah, if you, and it's a fucking maze. So if you just start taking weird turns and don't know where the fuck you are, all of a sudden you're in this magical art room of whatever. And you're like, holy shit. And you'll never be able to find it again. Yeah. Yeah. But if you go down into the fucking basement, you could see the, the medieval Louvre. You could see like excavations of the castle keep and some mm -hmm. of the walls and like the the fortress and like the, the the fucking dungeon and shit and i'm like cooler so, so when when i was at the louvre i actually i got to um it was pretty cool i got to go to this kind of invite something there was some sort of like special display so i was in after hours um and I actually got down one of the hallways after some like alarm something had gone off and then there was this dead man splayed out like the Vitruvian man 
underneath a lot of da Vinci's paintings and it was wild. And then people saw me there and they thought I killed the man. And then happens. I know. And then this, um, French, uh, curator chick was like, Oh my God, that's my uncle. And I was like, we have to hide. The police are after us. And then I found out that she was the descendant of Jesus and Mary Magdalene himself. And I wrote a book about it. It's called the da Vinci code. I was I was sitting here. I was gonna make a Da Vinci reference when you were talking about why do people give a shit about the Mona Lisa, uh, uh, and then I didn't. I let the moment pass me, and I'm so glad that like any good bit, there's there is no the moment can never be gone. It's never gone. There's codes everywhere. Oh God. Natalie, do you have a discovery for us? Because if we don't get away from the Louvre and Da Vinci right now, I feel like we're going to have a whole Da Vinci Code national treasure situation just linger. Which we will eventually have because I've still not seen either film and I keep promising them to drive to Des Moines and do it. Which, like, I'm never going to be mad about having a long extended Da Vinci Code national treasure moment. Wait, have you not read the book, Da Vinci Code? No, I have. You mean the the good book? I've read the good good book. The good book. Okay. Do you not, do you not recall you when I was reading the good book? The good book. Of our Lord and Savior, Dan Brown. Oh, God. Yes, I do have a discovery. And you know what? I might be as bold as to say that it is as great of, an, of a masterpiece as the good book and the Mona Lisa. What? I'm also very pleased that I've not only just discovered this, but in looking up anything about it to decide to discern whether or not it's been around for a while and i just didn't know about it it's actually new (laughs) so my discovery the brits have the best chat shows we know this yes uh graham norton is classic i don't want to become famous in america i want to become famous in britain i just want to chill with graham i just want to hang out with graham on that couch i want to smooch meryl streep uh just like our boy mark ruffalo did you gotta you gotta take your moments i best chat shows best game shows so Mm. the year of 2020 for me was mostly watching all of taskmaster that was available for me to watch not the american one didn't bother with that have been told australia is worth it if you like wait for them to get their sea legs I just discovered a game show hosted by one Jimmy Carr, who also hosts the, uh, what's it called? The Great Big Quiz of Everything or whatever? The, I, know. I know Jimmy Carr. I don't know what he the show is. He hosts all of the game shows, apparently. I was going to say, he's on everything. He really is. It's called I Literally Just Told You. And the premise of this game show is that it is a game show that gives you the answers while you're doing the show. So there will be questions later in the show there are memory rounds and there are questions based on things that have been already talked about in the show so i only have watched i watched the like celebrity uh, special episode because it had uh my boy alex horn on it from taskmaster uh and it was great but all so the the memory round questions are that's the premise is that he'll ask a question and then he'll be like, I literally just told you. <laughs> That's a very Jimmy Carr thing too. <laughs> it's so great. I want to rip it off. Just disdain dripping from his voice. My own. It's so, yeah, it's just, 
he'll be, he's he'll, he's really nasty about it too because he'll be like <laughs> he'll be like uh do you want to do you want a hint and so and one of and i was uh oh what's the last name it's i aisling um Aisling bing Aisling b oh maybe yeah, yeah yeah and then it's spelled like aisling yeah but it's uh, Aisling. Ashley. Ashley. She was on it, and she was like, "If you tell me, I literally just told you." <laughs> I oh my god! He's like, "It's the name of the show." But oh, it's so good! It's so good. Big recommend. You can watch the celebrity episode that I'm talking about. The entire thing is on YouTube. It's just delightful. Uh, Asim Shadri is on that episode as well. It's. I just. I can't begin. I can't. I cannot begin to explain how much I love the fact that it's all memory-based questions, and this and the questions are being written literally as the show is happening, and it's just an opportunity for Jimmy Carr to say, "I literally just told you." Wait, wait. It's written as they're playing. Yeah. So they're just to like fuck with them. Yeah. Yeah. So like, oh like, my god. Yeah. Memory rounds literally have questions that were written. So, so an example is that in in the one that I watched, somebody. Somebody had to do a round where they had to answer whether celebrities that were being named had been to prison, had never been to prison, or were currently in prison. And <laughs> fun factoids came up out of that because they have a, the, a panel that will, like, give you more information. And so one individual had been to prison, and they're like, oh, yeah, he was arrested for this. Uh, you know, the evidence that they found was was this thing. So then later in a memory round, somebody was like, according to our question writers, what? Uh, what evidence is what put so-and-so away for this crime of breaking and entering or whatever? And then the person is yeah. like, shit, fuck. I literally just I told literally you. literally just told you. What I love about British game shows is Every most of the time, well, yes, it's, there's not a lot of, like, plebs on them. It's just a bunch of celebrities and comedians, like, shooting the shit. Like, have you ever seen QI? No. Oh, they're all on YouTube. It's it it was originally hosted by Stephen Fry. Oh <gasps> Stephen Fry, I who I love. And he is just another one of those like he comes across as like very like snobby intellectual, but he's just a little shit and is has the best zingers. And then it was taken over by Sandy Toxvig, who oh. hosted Great British Baking Show. I who I love. This. So it's it's just a bunch of celebrities, and then it's it's like a quiz show where like each episode is a letter. So like on this episode of Q, like all of the questions and answers and stuff are based on the letter Q or something, and uh, and it's just like comedians giving smart ass answers. And then, you know, no, none of that's right. And then Stephen Fry just gives a little history lesson. And then we go on to the next one. And it's delightful. Check it out. I, I'll i say that's my discovery. That's my discovery so that we we can get along to the episode. Because, <laughs> you know what? We might just have to have an entire British game show episode. We really might. We really might. I was going to say, to throw to throw a bone to a non-British game show, uh one that brings me pure delight is there's actually two on dropout tv that give me pure delight and those are uh um actually which is a, a quiz show where you have to 
give the correct they're giving you're given a piece of information and something in it is wrong something in the fact is wrong and you have to give your answer you have to start your answer with um actually or else you don't get points and then oh my god that's, that's like saying what is in jeopardy yeah, it's so good <laughs> the whole premise of it is that there's nothing that nerds like doing more than correcting people so it'll be like a fact about the star wars universe but something in it is incorrect and then uh, Dropout also has a show that I am pretty sure I've, I think you've seen a clip of because it it's goes a little around on a, on a, on the old TikTok on Instagram. The old TikTok. Uh, and that's Game Changer, where the premise is that the rules of the game, you're not told the rules of the game. It's a different game show every time. The rules, you have to kind of discern the rules as you play it. And they did a whole, like, basically just musical improv episode that was great. And, Stop it. And it's that's, that's also, my shit. Uh, yeah, Dropout has some good shit. They're the guys, it's college humor, is what is rebranded mm-hmm. to Dropout. But um, they've decided that you don't need to stay in school. And that's. Like, Natalie, do you want to just, like, scrap our topics for today and just, like, shoot the shit? Because, honestly, I could go on for a while. I've got more shit to talk about Ashling B. Yes, I looked up the pronunciation. It's Ashling. Ashling. Um, I would love to, but that would rob me of the opportunity to thoroughly bum everyone out. And you know what, you guys? Natalie owes me this because, again, the deepest apologies for the Great British mess, the Great British Pet Massacre topic. Um, I feel horrible. I feel like I'm about to make some enemies. But every show needs a heel. I'll be that. But Natalie, well, do you want to be the heel today? Yeah, I'm going to. We we talk about it a lot. History is ripe with bummers. So I'm here with the Great Big Bummer. Uh, the Great Big Bummer show. The- <laughs> Our new British uh, uh-huh. game show that that mostly it's it's i think it's really important nobody like most americans don't know about it and with ukraine back in the news because of just reasons of why should we give them a break leave ukraine alone (laughs) um i'm I'm about to get under a blanket and start crying leave ukraine alone it's my perpetual mood I thought that I would bring us some uh, super bummer history from that part of the world that is just another another instance of please just leave Ukraine alone. And that's uh, Holodomor, which, or Holodomor, depending on how you- Hold the door? I had a feeling you were going <laughs> to- Holodomor. Sorry. It does sound I, like that. It does. Uh, I will give you that. However, time to get on the train to Bummer Town. So where are we? Ukraine. But pre we're in Soviet Ukraine. Um, when are we? 1932. So we're between world wars. We're, you know, we're just sandwiched between two wars to end all wars. That's where we exist. And uh-huh. now we're done, and everything's perfect, and no wars, right? Yep. Natalie, that Absolutely. wasn't much of a bummer. No wars. So, Holodomor is uh, a bummer because the word literally means death by hunger. And it oh, is no. given to a horrific famine that there was like a Soviet famine during the time, but it was like especially bad in Ukraine. We'll get into why. 
and people are dying in the streets. Cass, do you want to take a stab at what causes a famine? I mean, a lot of times it's civil and social unrest, which I feel like is maybe, I mean, the plague via, you know, uh, environmental conditions, but usually civil and social unrest. I'm so Probably glad. In this case. I'm so glad that you said that. I was kind of baiting you to give me a wrong answer of just like, oh, bad, bad weather. And yeah, and maybe I would if I was on the Great Big Bummer Show. But since I know I'm on the Great Big Bummer Show, I know it's gonna be a bummer. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, in this case, it's policies and basically targeted. It's a genocide. This is a famine. This is an intentional famine. Um, that is uh, a, a genocide of the Ukrainian people. So, look, it's not going to be a good time. I'm sorry. But that's an event that's, all, that's literally also known as the terror famine. So I've never heard of this. And that's exactly why I was like, I'm going to bring it. I encourage everyone to do some more research on this. I'm going to do some broad strokes. But it's... Uh, like any genocide, difficult to encapture efficiently, other than real, real fucked up, bro. So this is a man-made famine. Ukraine at this point is part of a broader Soviet Russia. To give you a little bit of historical context, uh, between 1917 and 1921, Ukraine very briefly kind of became an independent country. They were trying to retain their independence. And eventually they succumbed to the Red Army and got incorporated into the Soviet Union, the USSR. But in, in Ukraine, in the 1920s at least, the Soviet central authorities kind of let them still act autonomously. Um, they had some cultural autonomy. And so they were able to kind of do their thing, but the end of 1920s, big... Big old Big Joe Stalin is is in power and decides that Big Daddy Joe. Big Daddy Joe is like, you know what I really don't like? Cultural autonomy in Ukraine. <laughs> don't like it. Not a fan. Oh, so God. so he we're, we're at this point he's like sending sending in people to intentionally intimidate, arrest, imprison, execute thousands of Ukrainian intellectuals, church leaders as well as any Communist Party functionaries in Ukraine that had supported Ukraine's distinctiveness as Ukraine and as its own people with its own culture. At the same time, what's going on is Stalin is starting to roll out a plan of collectivization. It's part of his kind of utopian view of, of uh, the communist state is that, you know, we all, we all pitch in, we all build greatness together, which, f fine, but the propaganda, I'm trying to find it in my notes, the propaganda literally was saying, if you don't, if you don't work, you don't eat. Yeah, here it is. The pop propaganda slogan was literally, the one who does not work does not eat. And the, for, the, for collectivization, the, basically it forced peasants to transfer their land and livestock to state-owned farms, and Ukraine has a lot of they're all like independent farms. A lot of them, a lot of the smaller farms, the existence of it is just to produce sustenance. Like that's, they're just 
feeding themselves in the village that they're in. They're not necessarily like a big, huge, massive production, like export farm. Ukraine is known mm-hmm. as the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. So for there to be a insane famine there should raise some eyebrows and question marks. So the idea behind collectivization, or at least the utopian propaganda behind it, was that everyone would voluntarily surrender their farms and cattle to the state, and then we'd all work together for the greater good of the USSR. But that doesn't work when people don't want to do that, and when you then take the things that they have worked for and built themselves by force. You don't want to give me your toys? Fine, I'll break it. Wait, now nobody has toys. Yeah, basically. Uh, or food. Or food. So the state confiscates the property of independent farmers and forces them to then work on their own farm um, or on government collective farms as day laborers. So they've basically been demoted, demoted. business owners and farmers. And then more, uh, more proper, prosperous farmers, the ones who like have livestock, for example, and aren't just growing for sustenance for their immediate vicinity, are are the ones who often were in a position where they felt like they could resist collectivization. And then they were branded what was called kulaks, which uh, was basically just a term used for rich peasants. And they were declared enemies of the state who deserved thus to be eliminated as a class because they weren't playing well with others. So thousands of farmers are thrown out of their homes and deported. Which you can then imagine how we end up in a famine situation when we've uh, deported the people who know how to grow the crops. You know, just a, a thing. So here's the thing. Collectivization wasn't just rolled out in Ukraine. It was rolled out in other regions. But the penalties for not voluntarily jumping on board were much harsher in Ukraine. It was much more targeted at Ukraine and Kuban Um, Kazakhstan, which is like right next door. It was made deadlier in Ukraine by a series of political decrees aimed at ethnic Ukrainians. So the Ukrainian word for it, meaning death by hunger, is meant to emphasize the intentional extermination of the Ukrainian people and not just be like, it's a Soviet famine. It's like, no, no, we were being killed by hunger intentionally. So in the early 1930s, there are over 4,000 protests of Ukrainian farmers against the collectivization initiative. And uh, that's part of why Stalin is like, well, we can't have them be able to revolt against this. So we're just going to, if you don't, if you won't do it, we'll, we'll deport you or kill you. And then also we'll put in all of these other kind of like safeguards into place. So other things policy-wise that were going on in addition to farmers being sent into exile was the institution of harvest quotas that were near impossible to meet. For example, the harvest quota in 1932 in Ukraine was 5.696 billion metric tons or kilograms of grain, which... If you look at what was produced in the years beforehand, is like more than double what they had been expected to to grow the year before. Wait, and is that their requirement if they want if they want to be their Not, own? No, that's their requirement. Just period. They're like, this is what you. This is what 
you owe... So, you are now on a collectivized government farm, and you have to give us this much? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, Ukraine owes this much, basically, to the USSR. So Something about this doesn't feel like it's... It's smart being set up to fail. Yeah, which is then, you know, this is your bread basket, USSR. You ain't getting no bread. You ain't get. You ain't getting no bread. Well, like it's not like Ukraine's not getting bread. Like you ain't getting no bread. Exactly. But <laughs> we can punish Ukraine specifically. We can cut their rations for their failure to meet their end of the quota. We can institute uh laws that basically make it so that if they try to hoard any of their grain for themselves to you know feed themselves or their families that they'll be killed or deported so it's in order for in order for this uh harvest quota to be approved it had it wasn't stalin wasn't just like this is the thing he also had to like get it past like his closest associates and two of his closest associates at the time uh kiganovich and molotov which you can guess what incendiary cocktail is named for him. Oh, Jesus. They're, they're aware of Stalin's intention to destroy any existing opposition, especially in Ukraine, where national identity and independent thought has been a stumbling block for him. So Stalin basically realizes, okay, if I destroy Ukrainian villages, like if I, and by destroy, I mean, if I make, if I unexist them, make it impossible for a Ukrainian independent nation to develop so they can't try to regain their independence from the Soviet Union. So yeah. me and my friends, we're going to approve these harvest quotas. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, the Ukrainians start like stealing their inventory back. The, the, the ones who, the cool, the ones who are considered kulaks <clears throat> were the, the richer of the peasantry. Yeah. And they're, they're forced to start trying to take back their inventory. They've been left with almost nothing to feed themselves. So to curtail that even more, in uh, August of 1932, Stalin passes a resolution, quote, on safekeeping the property of state enterprises, collective farms and cooperatives, and strengthening public property. And he enacts this law. It's also known as the Law of Five Years of Grain. And it basically said that any theft or attempted theft of collective property means I, I get to shoot you. Execution by shooting. Maybe but they get a fair trial, right? No. Uh, <laughs> I knew the answer. Maybe what's, What was interesting is one source I read was like, maybe if you have extenuating circumstances, which I'm like, is the the impending starvation of your family not an extenuating circumstance means you could instead of getting instead of being shot uh get a minimum of 10 years imprisonment so yay so you can take that and uh figure out what your extenuating circumstances are so with armed with this law special patrol brigades go start going house to house to confiscate all the grain people had and if they if they missed their quotas Literally, they would take the seed that was going to be sown to grow grain if you weren't meeting meeting your quotas. They'd go as far as to take that. Uh, they would let they were levying fines in meat and potatoes for failure to fulfill the quotas. They were searching homes and seizing other foodstuffs. 
and they were going into the villages like that weren't meeting these quotas and basically laying siege to them because they would go in they'd search all the houses they take all the shit they confiscate everything and then they would blacklist them which they it's a, it was in November of 32 they introduced blacklists or blackboards and this is a policy is that where the term comes from i don't know i don't think so cuz like we're in the 32 yeah. like we're in the 30s folks have already been blacklisted for shit i feel like but yeah. they, when did the list become a ball Because it kind of means the same thing, right? Blackball, blacklisted. I don't know because in like Molotov in in Molotov's uh, policy, he called it blackboards, and I think it's because they would publish like they these shame lists of these communities that had met their quotas, and maybe that started by them writing it on blackboards. I don't know. I just know that these villages would be. It was a siege upon them by. Yeah their own technically government mm -hmm. they, the villages would be surrounded by army units there'd be no entry or exit all essential goods salt matches paraffin food everything would be confiscated from all of the stores um and then people would slowly start starving to death because they were they were keeping them from being able to leave ukraine to get any grain from other places they did the same thing in kuban which is another region that was mostly inhabited by ethnic Ukrainians. So it, it just completely isolated them. And a part of it, I think, is because Stalin was getting mad because in before all of this, before this was like put into place, Ukrainians would kind of escape to outside the USSR to Poland and basically like cast shame upon the Soviet Union, being like, they're letting us starve, they're, help, they're making mm -hmm. us starve. Uh, and, and Poland's like, man, we have enough of our own problems, y'all. <laughs> well, Stalin's like, you're making me look bad. And they're like, you're publishing the names of our towns in propaganda to shame us for not being able to meet your insane quotas. So this is like a genocide that people just don't know about. At the time, obviously, in the Soviet Union, like nothing gets published without approval by this by the state there's um there's a movie that came out that that touches on uh a jur like it's the journalistic coverage of holodomor at the time and it's uh it came out i think 2020 it's called mr jones and in in the press stalin was skewing the stats so he would present the world with like the high birth rates of the ussr during the 30s being like look at us flourishing while you silly capitalist Americans are in the Great Depression. But he yeah. was, uh, you know, not publishing the catastrophic reduction in the Ukrainian population at the time. Yeah, you got to be birthing babies because you're killing all your alive people. <laughs> you're killing your alives. You need more alives. <sighs> yeah, so it was supposed to kind of be like, oh, <laughs> Silly America struggling in the Great Depression. Look at the wealth and success of this utopian communist society, you weak, selfish capitalist pig. Which, like, <laughs> capitalism sucks, but. That's what I was. So. Maybe, like, maybe mass genocide isn't the answer. Do you know what's going to fix all of our problems? That's a opinion. <laughs> Natalie, there comes a time in every episode where I need to talk to you about Iowa. Wait. Is this a new segment? 
No, it's an ad for our sponsor, Raygun, who I love for being a wonderful business and for providing me with a regular excuse to bring up Iowa. As if you needed one. <laughs> right. Raygun is the greatest store in the universe, hands down. They're headquartered in the greatest state in the universe. Okay, okay. They also have other locations, including one in the best city in the universe, in Chicago. True. I guess you could say Raygun brings us together. Raygun kind of brings everyone together. True again. From home goods and paper products to their signature apparel, Raygun is all about good vibes, great laughs, and kind of just not being a shitty person. Yup. And they regularly collaborate with charities and special causes on special runs of products, and 15 to 30% of their net profits go to a variety of nonprofit organizations every year. And they sponsor this really dope history podcast I love. Right? So don't be a shitty person. Check them out at their stores across the Midwest or online at raygunsite.com. Use promo code SHARIALATER to save on your next order. Um, yeah, I mean, especially in America, communism is, is the big bad evil, but every, every governmental system at its core is a good idea and then is just, you know, tarnished. Like capitalism, you know, uh, competition and free, free market, free market. Yes. Um, great idea. Yeah. But to the exact opposite of communism, which is collectivization. Now we're going into privatization and just because it's the opposite of communism doesn't mean it's good and it's extreme because now no one has access to it and it's not the state that's taking it over. It's just like three billionaires mm -hmm. so potato potato maybe like we famine reference pay attention to like the the policies and the regulations yeah. of the way things are being and you know maybe like the thought process behind them because it's like okay i'm sure there was there were some places that were like this does work for us this collectivization does work for us fine but when it's targeted to perp intentionally starve out people that you don't want to rise against you to become independent, maybe your heart's in the wrong place. <laughs> maybe you don't need to go to as extreme a situation because you know you're uh, you're starving people from food literally, and then over here in America we're starving people from you know access to medical medical care so um let's just god let's just go easy you know it's not the right answer is not the exact opposite of of the wrong answer yeah. always so the, the, sorry the, i just had to bring the, in how the philosophies each have their strengths it's yes. how you put them into practice yeah so communism like let's not go to the extreme let's Let's keep it pure, y'all. Yeah. Um, uh, not, let's not, you know, just commit to And everyone who's like, oh, fucking socialists nowadays in America, it's like, well, yeah, in its extreme, socialism's fucking stupid, but let's take the good ideas. Let's take the good ideas from capitalism, democracy, all of that. How many conversations have you had recently where with... Um, people of a certain age, uh, 
that given that we're in a huge public health crisis, also known as a pandemic, plague. Uh, a plague upon your house, and they're like so close to understanding the value of uh, universal health care, like so close. They really are. But they just can't get there. No. Uh, yeah. So I just, I, I think it's a really important story. It's a very important part of Ukraine's history. And, you know, maybe why we're not big fans of just, uh, I say we because I, uh, I, I, God, I'm going to sound like such a fucking American right now. I'm 50% Ukrainian. Um, my mother's whole side is Hundo, Hundo P. But they're like, even those who survived were at risk if they talked about anything regarding the uh, Holodomor. Like, they weren't allowed to talk about it, which just that trauma and everything carries with you as things move forward, and then you still don't talk about it. And the Kremlin is denying it for half a century that it even yeah. happened. And, like, let well, me. Well, and generational trauma feeds into whether your Ukrainian heritage is in Ukraine or in America, like that generational trauma is then just going to build wherever you're at, you know? Yeah. And it's also like the parts of like Ukraine was, uh, was affected as a whole by this, like 3.9 million people in Ukraine died Jesus. as a result of this. And no uh, one knows about this. No, no. And it's, and like to put that into perspective, that's 13.3%, I think, of Ukraine's entire population died Jesus. of mass starvation. In how many years? In like two or three years. Yeah, that's a, that's a big old chunk in a short amount of time. It's, it's, I mean, here we're already in. We're already in Bummerville. I already told you this wasn't going to be a, a super happy time. So I'll also mention that there's evidence of widespread cannibalism during this time, to the Jesus. point that Soviet the Soviet regime was literally printing posters that said "To eat your own children is a barbarian act," because it was absolute desper desperation. The the parents who didn't eat their children died sooner and then their kids were like ah. well now like, we got nothing yeah over 20 over 2500 people were convicted of cannibalism during the holodomor because they literally Jesus. they were removing everything from these towns they were yeah. locking everybody in so it's it's people resort to fucked up shit when they are presented with fucked up shit yeah and I, I do want to, I do want to say that uh, it wasn't like I had mentioned before. It wasn't just Ukraine. Uh, 1.3 million people in Kazakhstan died due to the same famine. This is a region that was largely, at this point, ethnic Ukrainian, so it was still very much targeted at the same group of people. Just they happened to be in two separate uh, nations or communities at the time. Yeah. Um, 3.2% of Russia's population, because there's like the Great Soviet famine at this at the same time. Uh, 3.2% of Russia's population dies dur in, during this same time period, as opposed to, like, almost 15% of Ukraine's. 
So, woohoo. Um, but yeah, so people like they like you you couldn't talk about it, which is why people still don't know about it now. It was denied by the Kremlin for half century. I think as of 2020, 16 countries and the Vatican recognize it as a genocide. Thanks, Vatican. Yeah. I love it. It's like 16 countries and the Vatican. Um, so it, is, it is officially recognized by like the UN as a genocide of the Ukrainian people. Back to the whole, like, I'm going to sound so American. Um, Natalie, you personally don't need to worry about the Kremlin. You know, I don't think they're after you. <clears throat> and silencing history, you know, it, when you isolate someone, when, you know, because, again, like, United States doesn't know. United States, most people don't know Kazakhstan is a place, first of all. So we definitely don't know about a Ukrainian genocide. So we don't know about anything. So it takes people talking about things yeah. to enact change, to bring awareness. Like, everyone, I feel like, kind of writes off Russia... I mean, doesn't write them off, but like getting into the history, they just know Russia's bad. You know, that's all we're they told. Don't, that's all they we're don't told. Barely know why all of the all of the countries that that get, that left the Soviet Union that like got were very happy to no longer be part of the Soviet Union yeah. are maybe still very distrustful of Ukraine of uh, Russia and the. And I feel like so many people just lump eastern europe into one homogenous place or part you know other oh, they're russian it's russiany and that discounts a lot of their history a lot of their trauma a lot of their plight and it also fucks up our own politics and our own you know like who you're voting for and your understanding of world politics is so stunted and then it fucks up what's going on in our country because you're like hey i don't understand it it's like when when the uk voted for brexit the number one googled thing in the uk was what is the eu yeah you know when you have this democratic process of voting for things and you don't understand what's going on in the world you're gonna do shit like i don't know vote for trump <laughs> yeah there's a uh it's i i actually i hope he updates it there's a really interesting from uh you know when russia was like you know what you know what crimea crimea peninsula take back seas uh there's a really interesting um video from uh john green kind of explaining from seven years ago kind of what like what's happening in ukraine at that point and i'm like oh you should you should probably we need a part two of that because of the current ukraine crisis yeah and um just, ukraine just wants to, they only want to be in the eu and they don't but it's not that simple because no. there's the the there are people in ukraine what is technically ukraine who consider themselves ethnically russian and it's just it's it's complicated read read the news do some research re learn more about holodomor um and don't assume that all of eastern europe is the same hold the door of history open don't shut them out 
Did you know the the country of Canada, NATO, has a Twitter account, and they posted. For any Russian military out there who's confused, and they posted a map of Eastern Europe and highlighted Russia, and it just says, Russia, and then they highlighted Ukraine and said, not Russia. You know, <laughs> the country of Canada tweeted that. It's just confusing. It's so confusing, these borders. That we uh, that we should respect. Got it. Can't just go take things. I don't. I don't know. Um, yeah. I want. I should mention. So I because I mentioned Mr. Jones. Uh, speaking of people not knowing about it now and not talking about it Mr. now. Mr. Jones and me. Is that oh, what that song's about? I don't think so. My uh, okay. our dear friend Mr. McNamara, uh, Adam McNamara, was in a a, a film called Bitter Harvest. That is about Holodomor, and I can't remember exactly what he said, but we were talking about it once, and he shared an anecdote basically about how when they were filming, they had to like, they were basically warned not to talk about what they were filming, or like they they were talking with somebody local, and they were like, oh, that never happened. Like that still while well, they were filming in Ukraine. I think they were in Ukraine and, and Russia. I, I don't I don't remember specifically. But another fun anecdote that Adam told me about filming Bitter Harvest is that he rides a horse in it. And if you watch it, um, he wants you to know that that horse hates him. That horse hated him. So wait, did Adam have to do a Ukrainian accent? Oh, I don't know. I've not seen I've not seen the movie because we could use that to transition into my topic. Oh, I'm so glad that I set this up for you. Um, Natalie, pre be prepared to be tickled. Um, I need to I be knew after what I just did to everyone. I didn't know. I didn't know what Natalie's topic was, but she texted me and was like, uh, I'm just I'm deciding if I should be a big bummer or not. And I was like, I don't know, after the Great British Pet Massacre, I don't think you could have anyone hate you more than me. And she's like, I don't know, gen genocide's kind of a bummer. So I had an idea of what we were going into. So I was like, I'll pick a fun topic. I'll pick one that Natalie and I love. <sighs> I'm here to talk to you about, can you guess? I, I can't. Oh, okay. <laughs> Accents. Oh, I wasn't sure if it was that broad. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's... It started off broad and then it, it narrowed down um, significantly. So I'm here to talk to you about the development and the history of dialects and accents, specifically in the United States, because I had to narrow it down a little bit. Was this just an excuse for you to go back and watch our favorite Wired? Uh, it's Wired, right? With Yeah. You know what? I haven't even, but I was telling my partner about it and I was like, she was like, how is that a topic? I was like, well, let me tell you. And then Natalie and I watch all these videos. Uh, yeah, it is. It's Wired, Eric Singer, um, who Natalie and I fell in love with and became obsessed with. I'm he is, I love him so much. <laughs> he's an accent expert and a dialect coach for a lot of actors. He does these great YouTube videos where he'll just, um, he'll be like, the the worst British accents by Americans or 
Um, he'll go into very specific regional accents. He'll pull clips from movies and say they did a really good job of this or the one thing he missed was this. And he'll talk a lot about the actual like science of it, of how people's palates develop, about how you need to move. You know, people think when you do accents, you're just kind of changing your voice. The way you do that is the way you set your jaw, your mouth, your lips, your teeth where the sound comes from oh my it's so it's... it's so great he does he does a tour he does like a tour of different regions of all of their accents and he did a, a tour of it's multi it's multiple parts obviously of uh of just north american accents yeah and it's and it's so interesting there's so much history in it because it's also talking about and i'm sure you're gonna talk about this it's about it's about like how it'll like because of who because of who the colonizers were in different regions and like how they mesh together. Oh, oh, it's so. Yes. Oh. Chef's kiss. Every time there's a new one, I, Natalie I was like, have you seen the new one? He's like, oh my God, of course I have. And then the discovery of his tattoo. I was really. <laughs> they do. They, it's all like chest up, you know, like he's just talking, talking delivering head. a camera. And then one day they kind of like panned out and he's kind of this very like, clean cut put together guy like his voice is very much like this he's an actor he's learned to enunciate this and man so you could think... explain anything to me and i would feel like i was an expert about it afterwards just because he's yeah. so good at he's he comes across as very like well quaffed prim pro... not prim proper but and then he's got this like huge forearm tattoo and so he's now kind of like, like the bad boy of accent work <laughs> unexpected but major swoon this is now an eric singer fan podcast you eric if you want to come on the pod oh. 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 <laughs> i really did turn this whole thing around <laughs> i knew i knew okay so i just you know broad search googled history of accents history of accent development and this article um from one siobhan wood so I'm guessing it's, you know, somewhere in the UK or Ireland or something because they talk about, uh, this article talks about, it says the birth of a new accent. These British scientists in Antarctica developed their own accent unintentionally. And it was this, they've, they've been there for like a few years. It was recent and, you know, they're, probably doing recordings or um, logs of what they're learning there. And they could actually see the shift and change in their dialect, in their accent. And a lot of accents develop or solidify due to isolation. Mm -hmm. Before media, I mean, the first media was like newspapers and stuff. So even if you're getting outside media, outside news, you're reading it in your own accent. And so since it was a bunch of different UK scientists, they're all kind of melding together. Uh, they're influencing each other. Accent and dialect, you, you start to speak your own language. And that's also how language develops. Mm -hmm. When you're around a certain people, you figure out how to speak to each other a certain way. You become, you come up with your own words, phraseology, the way you're hitting syllables, all of that. And they had 
developed this accent. And it was the first time linguists were able to see something change in real time because accents usually develop over centuries. Yeah. And so that kind of sparked this where I'm starting from. Um, accents are based on geographical region, cultural regions, um, religion, social class, uh, invasions, migrations, modern influences. Um, and then with the development of radio and TV, now our collective like globalism is exposing us to new accents, to new sounds. So I'm going to talk a little I, bit about... I spend too much time talking to Adam. Yeah. And now I say things that don't make sense in an American accent. Yeah. I had, like, the, the most generalized Midwestern accent. Um, my cousins are from Minnesota, and me and my sister would kind of tease them. They didn't have, like, thick Fargo, Minnesota accents. Mm -hmm. Um even though I know Fargo isn't in Minnesota. That's just the stereotype. Mm -hmm. Fargo isn't in Minnesota, right? No. Okay. Wow. Um, but they would hit certain vowels differently. So we'd be like, oh, don't you know? And we started like doing the stereotypical Minnesota accent to make fun of them. And then our vowels, just from teasing them so much, started to get more, um, more of that northern Minnesota. I lived in Chicago for six years. And... I now say like Chicago or like my A's are starting to hit more Chicago style and it comes out still, even though I've been in Des Moines now for two and a half years, I'm a parrot. So I just pick it up. I love mimicking. I love matching. When I was in Ireland for two weeks, my vowels started getting like this and I wasn't speaking in like a true Irish accent because I can't do a true Irish accent. But I noticed I was picking up vowels and sounds and cadences. Um, it makes it very difficult. I am very much the same, and it makes it very difficult whenever you're in. It's why I told Cass. Cass can do an Australian accent that she learned how to do for a sketch show, and I told her I want to write a sketch that forces me to learn how to do a New Zealand accent. And then I want to do a scene that the entire purpose of the scene is to see if we could each stay in our accent. It's the hardest thing. And usually like. For one, it's so difficult. Now anytime. Well, and I, I hit the Australian accent. I was working on it so much. So now, you know, a lot of times when people try to do an Australian accent and turns into a British accent. Now when I try to do a British accent or an Irish accent or a Russian accent I was trying to do, it slips back to Australian. Um. But so all those factors, isolation, um, uh, social class, all these things uh, influence uh, accent and dialect. The difference between accent and dialect is very fine. People often uh, switch the two back and forth. An accent is defined as a distinctive way of pronouncing the words of a language. So accent is pronunciation. Dialect describes the particular words used, which are unique to a person or region. Ooh, so dialect... The vernacular. Dialect is, yes, it's more vernacular phraseology. It's when you go to, um, like, if, you, if you're talking about Minnesota versus Alabama, um, you're going to 
these are stereotypes and like extreme examples just to give you the idea the don't you know of minnesota and the southern bless her bless her heart yeah you know and i mean everyone says all these things but also that's because of uh media and globalization like i never said or really thought you know bless her heart or y'all i never said y'all until well, until I moved to Chicago and was trying to be more gender neutral, y'all is the best gender neutral gender neutral word there is. It's y'all. a favorite and I way love for it. me to like dress down uh, an email or a text that I'm like saying something that I'm like, this might, this sounds cold and I don't mean it that way. Exactly. So I'm just yes. y'all in there. Yeah. A lot of times if, if people would be saying y'all a while ago, it was because like, why are you trying to do a Southern accent? dialect um now it's just again because of media and globalization it's now just a collective word that americans use and and not just the south you know cass we have to take an ad break fair enough we're a history podcast so we have to infuse this interlude with some tasty tasty facts okay oh tasty facts like brewing beer using hops became a standard practice as a result of early drug laws in bohemia ah yes the Reinheitsgebot Law of 1560. I remember it well. Now that hops are no longer a legally required ingredient in beer, welcome to the future, our friends at Herbiary have taken it upon themselves to release your taste buds from the cages of convention. They've experimented with over 200 different herbs and botanicals, building on the rich tradition and fermented folklore of hop-free brewing. Learn more about their delicious section of brews and where to find them at herbiary.com. Anyway, the United States. Uh, the United States um, was colonized by the British, uh, even though there are already Americans here. I just always like to get that out because uh, colonialism. Um, it was mostly not peasants, but they were the they were lower class. Uh, they were people, you know. I wouldn't say fleeing, but they were looking for new religious freedoms. They were a collective group of people. They were from one kind of group. They had what we call the rhotic R. That is a linguistic term for people who pronounce their R's. They hit um, water, uh, savor. Um, and so they had that rhotic R, which was more of a uh, lower class, um, working class people. So those people came over, they kind of had, they had this, this British accent-y. Um, and then as America became to be colonized, uh, more landed and wealthy people came over to exploit the resources, goods. They're like, well, I'm rich over here. Now I can be rich over there. I can get my own land. There's plenty of land to get. Um, I'm gonna get some peasants and slaves and start making more money. This uh, social class, this accent that was developed or differentiated by social class, they had what we call a non-rhotic R. So they're not pronouncing their R's. It's what's now known as received pronunciation, which is when we think of the general British accent, even though there's no British accent, 
it's taught in school. So you're taught this accent. It's, um, it's your BBC. It's your... Yes. So instead of saying car, we're saying car. We're saying saver instead of saver. So that more upper class, social class a little bit started more pronouncing. Posh. A little bit more posh. And so most of the people were... Uh, colonizing the East Coast, New England particularly, and then a lot of the people who started really making money in the South were plantation owners. Mm -hmm. So if you think of a the fancy schmancy Southern accent, they have a non-rhotic R. I'm driving my car and going into the, the, the city and I, I'll say, I'll say, I don't know. Again, I apologize to anyone. I'm using stereotypical accents to get the point across. No, improv accents. Impro improv accents, yes. So it's interesting because the wealthy class that came to the United States had that non-rhotic R, and so the wealth of early colonized America the upper class had that non-rhotic R. That stayed because of the isolation of New England. You know, we've got the Smoky Mountains. So as we developed west in the United States, there was separation from the east to the Midwest to the west. So those small communities of people in Massachusetts, in Maine, in Virginia, kept that non-rhotic R. That's an upper class thing. If we think modern day and we think non-rhotic R's, we think of Boston, Jersey, you know, pack the cat and have a dad. Mm -hmm. That's a non-rhotic accent, which we now think and associate more with a uh, blue collar working class that like really had, you know, a Jersey accent or a Boston accent or whatever, whatever. Um, that then, goes, that's more of social class of uh, industrialization. When uh, the wealth parity uh, kind of separated and there was, you know, people, immigrants coming in from Ellis Island and everything, and a lot of poverty hit New York, hit New England, um, that non-rhotic R stuck but weirdly became a lower class thing in that area, perceived lower class. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an interesting thing about where class um, comes into accents. So I'm all over the place. I'm so excited about this. Uh, so the British accent kind of came and a lot of people again had British accents and then it developed due to isolation. We weren't hanging out with Brits anymore. So we're kind of hearing what each other are saying. Again, we've got immigrants coming in. We've got um, slaves coming in. Uh, this from the South, the Afro-Caribbean accent hit. Uh, and also, also the disparity in who was coming over from, from Great Britain. Exactly. Like, uh, lower class Scots who are being sent uh, as like a prison sentence yes. to America. Uh, mm. People being brought over as the, in the servant class already who already don't have received pronunciation who aren't speaking that way. So it's, yes. 
it's interesting because there's like so many different accents in Britain. And so then even if you just think about, if you even just stay in the lane of Great Britain, of who's co who's coming over when, yeah. you see like waves of different ways of speaking. Yes. And, uh, and so this non-rhotic R, uh, once industrialization hit, end of the 1800s or the 19th century, um, that English influence, the trade between England and, and colonizers was kind of diminishing. America was growing and we didn't have such a dependence and a need on Britain. Also, we broke up with them. Um, the rhotic dialect became more prominent, so we're hitting those R's more. Uh, one of the reasons for that was also more German, more Irish and Scottish immigrants who were speaking with the rhotic English. So immigration and becoming a nation of immigrants, remember y'all, we're a nation of immigrants, um, developed and that melting pot that we talk of all the time, we started collectively developing our own accent through mimicry and through isolation. We don't have audio um, from the 1700s, obviously. Uh, one of the first uh, Love speeches. Love podcasts. Oh my God, they hit hard. Uh, one of the first uh, audio recordings we have was of Benjamin Harrison in 1889. It's nearly undecipherable. We can't understand what he's saying or exactly how he sounds. But William McKinley delivered a speech in 1897. We have his whole campaign speech. So we can hear his accent clearly. And it's different from what it is today. He was born in 1843 in the Midwest. Um, so it gives us an idea of kind of what the Midwest was and where he grew up. Uh, Thomas Edison has a recording of him speaking. Um, and his is more of that. English and American uh, uh, accent. Then we hit the 1930s and the 1950s and we have the mid-Atlantic and the transatlantic accent. And this was an invented and a developed accent and it was taught in schools. And that is how it became so widespread. Uh, just like received pronunciation in Britain, how it is taught in schools. This is the correct elocution and the way to speak. Uh, in the 30s and 50s, uh, this accent was established among the elite. We needed a way to differentiate the peasants from the fancies. Um, also, it spread because of Hollywood. We're now having talkies. We're now having people all over see how other people in other places speak. We all idealize Hollywood, so we want to sound like them. So the mid-Atlantic and the transatlantic accent was a combination of the posh aspects of British and kind of what a bit of the American accent was. So when you hear Catherine Hepburn, you see her dropping some of her R's and she's doing this weird, we're hitting different syllables, we're having different cadences and we're getting a little more nasally with things. That was invented. I wish every time they hired uh, an English actor in an American role and they had like a dialect coach on, on site that the dialect coach just kind of fucked him over and had him do a mid-Atlantic accent. <laughs> yes. This is like Doctor Strange, but he has a mid-Atlantic accent. Yes. Well, 
And so again, this now became an elite pronunciation. FDR actually had this accent. Um, it also sounded more word worldly. That's why transatlantic, that's why um, combining kind of the cultural elite of Europe as well as America. America was, it was new money. We were cowboys. We were kind of thought of as not as cultural. Um, our money was kind of, it wasn't good money because it wasn't inherited. You know, everything we got, we kind of built from here. We built from exploiting the land, exploiting the people, um, building up resources, trade resources. So polishing up our accent on the works serves us on the global stage. With exactly. Of yes. Making him sound less, less rough and tumble. Also, I would argue plays better, but plays better on the uh, national, on the local stage, because you want, we're, we're in like chief politicking territory mm -hmm. for, for like the presidency when we start talking about Roosevelt and everything. And we're, you want to be perceived as an everyman. Yes. So you want to drop whatever your very specific, maybe regional accent is. Yeah. So that anyone can kind of cast you as the president next door. Like you're all, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not gonna favor, uh, I'm not gonna favor the New England just yeah. because I'm from there or whatnot. I need I need that Southern vote. I need that Western and that Midwestern vote. But if I say well, like I'm from New England, then everyone will think that I'm just gonna serve New England. So I'm gonna kind of. Yeah. Well, and I know I have a friend who she's originally from, she traveled all over, but she mostly grew up in Texas. And she said in, in school, they, in English class, they taught them how to drop their Southern accent because it would limit them from job opportunities if they go outside of Texas. Because we stereotype and we think of Southern accents as like, you're dumb or you're slow because you have a bit more drawl than everybody else. Mm -hmm. So actors especially, but also people who want um, to be the everyman, to not be so, oh, you're so different. You, your thoughts must be wild and different. We want to seem the same as everybody else. Everyone's like, why do news reporters always sound the same? When news reporters talk, they're talking like this. It sounds very fake and very forced. Part of that is because they want everyone to be able to understand them. Part of that is because they're they're talking the whole time. So they need to hit certain things. They need to let everyone know when we're changing an idea. And now over to weather. You know, it is, it's calculated and it's meant for everyone to be able to understand. We lost the mid, the transatlantic accent in the 60s and 70s. Again, thanks, thanks Hollywood. Um, this was a, a phenomenon in literature starting in the like the 16, 17s, more like the 1700s. Uh, previous to that, all we cared about were kings. All we cared about were gentry. When we were reading stories, we were reading about, you know, the people we value. No one wanted to, to read a story about a peasant. Like, why would anyone be interested in that? We want to hear about King Richard. We want to hear about, uh, I don't I'm trying to not just do Shakespeare, <laughs> Caesar, all of that stuff. Um, in the 60s and 70s, we stopped focusing on the upper class. Um, these 
uh, escapist dreamlike fairy tale stories. We wanted more realistic, more gritty. A lot of this we can thank or curse Marlon Brando for. Uh, he was despised among these great actors uh, because he started talking like this and he started mumbling and he started, you know, he wasn't moving his mouth a lot. And instead of that very um, delivered line of, where are we going? He would say something like, where are we going? He wanted it to sound natural. He wanted it to sound like real people. He mumbled it, pissed actors off. But people wanted to see more real life. They wanted to see gritty. They wanted to see people on TV who sounded like them, who talked like them. Mm -hmm. I'm not this fancy king or wealthy Born person. Yeah, you know, the depression hit. We're slowly coming out of... Um, well, not slowly. Once World War Two hit, we we boomed, and uh, we were very America first. So we wanted to sound like Americans. We wanted to sound like um, the American dream, where everybody can be on TV and everybody can tell a story. And we experienced a lot of of drama and trauma during the Great Depression and during the war. So we want to kind of collectively talk about those things and talk about real stuff. So, um, we dropped the mid the mid Atlantic accent, and it became unnecessary, frivolous, hoity toity. Mm. Then there's this thing called the Great American or the Great Vowel Shift, um, which was it. It was in America. Um, and this is kind of where the North, South, Midwest, West accent, where we could start to really regionalize people. Uh, this was first identified by the linguist William Labov in 1973. And he classified this as vowel shift stretching from New York to cities across the Midwest. Uh, the vowels are stretched out, made a little harder. Um, and it began in the Great Lakes area, like Chicago, Minnesota, but it spread throughout the whole country. What, what up? No. <laughs> Midwest is best? Yes. Um, a lot of this you can attribute to Scandinavians come over. People, obviously, you know, kind of their first contact with the United States was, was the East Coast with New England. And as we're spreading west through the Great Lakes, a lot of the Scandinavians, they like their water. They like their cold water. So um, we're hanging out in the Midwest. We've got more of a nasally accent. Um, we've, we, hit, we hit letters and words differently. So we've got this kind of Scandinavian accent that becomes then more American, that becomes more Midwestern, that become you know, mm -hmm. you can slowly see the development of it you can in follow, the South. You can follow a straight line from even now, if people are like, oh, do a, do like a Scandinavian accent. Everyone look, everyone in improv shows goes very sing-songy with like a little, yes. and it's like straight line from that to a stereotyped Midwest, uh, um, Minnesotan, Wisconsin. Yeah. Again, back to back to extremes and stereotypes. Swedish chef, borsky, 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 borsky. Yeah. Oh my gosh, how are you guys doing today? Yeah. Like that's, and then as that extreme kind of uh, 
balances out. We start talking like this, you know, and it's we have a, a different kind of sing songy cadence. Um, with uh, if you're looking at kind of south in the Gulf area, again, we have that Afro Caribbean influence combined with the wealthy, um, kind of southern class, class non rhotic. So we've got Cajun influences, we've got African Caribbean, um, Latino influences in the south east and the south um in the west all of the uh mexico owned a lot of the west and then there was all of the turmoil and the fighting and there's still a large uh latino and uh, southeast asian pacific islander so those accents kind of melted a, a lot of people uh speak uh tonga tagalog um Again, we talked about in the uh, Chinese food episode that a lot of the only uh, Chinese people and Asian people who first came over to America were from this one specific town, uh, like Sichuanese accents um, and dialects. And then, man, I don't know what uh, Pacific Northwest is. That's just its own thing. <laughs> That's its own thing. It's also it's feels very Scandi. It's very Scandi, and it's also, like, then if we're going into dialect, not accent, we talk about, like, valley girls are, like, whoa, like, we're bra, we're in the California, um, and then that kind of with the Latino, Asian, all of that fusion up with Scandinavian, and that's how you, I don't know, that's how you get Pacific Northwest. You take that, and you, and you put it someplace very difficult to get to for a very long time. <laughs> yes and then you get the pacific northwest yeah and and a lot of yeah a lot of you know we we i always joke that minnesota is just southern canada and again in that great lakes area you're getting a lot of scandinavians but also canada was a french colony and that's how we're getting a lot of that a boot and those Canadian accents where it's French Scandinavian combinations. And then um, also there's a lot of French influence in the Gulf, in the Gulf, Afro-Caribbean, all of that. So uh, have, have... fur traders were and trappers were hitting uh, Louisiana. And so it's it's wild and it's very again a lot of straight lines and a lot of you can see exactly where these accents come from now because of youtube and because of to talk and people are now developing accents and it's not a straight line it's not oh we came from this place specifically um it's people in the midwest saying y'all more it's people in you know, England saying y'all and everything. Not ruining people's lives, listeners' lives by purposely saying what? What? You're welcome. We got a, a, an, a facetious, angry tweet from a fan who's like, well, now that I listen to this episode, I can't say what normally. You're, You're welcome. welcome. <laughs> um, I get really excited about this. I love language. I love etymology. I love linguistics. I love accents obviously so much of it um comes from literature in in the uk a lot of um uh 
authors were starting when we started reading more about peasants and about the everyman um a lot of british writers were writing in accents and they were i'm rereading wuthering heights right now and every yeah. time joseph talks they have in the version that i have they have a footnote with it written in plain english mm -hmm. because, because bronte writes all writes his all of his uh dialogue in his dialect and accent and it is they're writing phonetically for the first time bronte does that a lot dickens does that dickens does it's so difficult yeah. to, to read when it's as heavy-handed as it is in uh i have to read that stuff out loud yeah for for a while and then i like hear it in my head and then it doesn't look like i'm reading a different language sometimes i read it out loud just because i want because i'm like oh this is a perfect way to this is actually a perfect way to practice an act yes versus just taking something and trying to transpose it in my brain, taking something written in that accent. Yeah. Um, accents, again, intrigue me a lot. And I, again, was trying to do more accent work. And I had an idea for a sketch um, of, you know how you can change Siri's voice mm -hmm. about like, oh, I'm going to do American or British. I wanted to do Siri in like hyper-specific British regional dialects of like the north and then scottish and then going down to the south like i don't know i i had it a lot worked out better but there are about 37 different dialects in the united kingdom alone it's a very small island um and some brits cannot understand someone if they're a few counties away it's mm -hmm. so so rigidly established uh and it's it's really interesting to me and it's it's uh fascinating because when people think of british accents they think of received pronunciation they think of that super generalized accent and there's so many different ones there's so many more fun uh british accents and again immigration changes a lot of it now so you're seeing a lot of uh there's let's see london jamaican english it's now it's kind of its own language um it's uh not unlike african-american vernacular english we have in the united states uh and certain words are being used more like sick blood bruh um and and you can kind of tell the difference between uh there's a lot of immigration from jamaica which was colonized by England. And then there's a lot of like Nigerian specifically accents. So it's interesting when you can kind of tell like British Jamaican versus British Nigerian um, India, again, big old colonized by the UK. So a lot of them, uh, when they learned English, they were taught British English. Um, a lot of them study in England, a lot of people in um, China uh, study at Oxford and in England. Um, I work with a lot of people from India, Southeast Asia. And one thing that really hurts my heart, I think names are really important. I think making an effort to not only remember names, but to say them correctly is, is very important. It's your identity. Um, I have a lot of uh, Asian speakers and uh, people from Southeast Asia, from India, who 
I'm I'm this lesson coordinator. I help kids and people get signed up for music lessons. So I need to get their names. I need to write them down. I'll say, what's your name? And they'll just start spelling it or they'll hand me their ID and be like, here, just write it or I'll write it for you. And I always try to make an effort to say, would, would you pronounce it for me? I'd like, I'd really like to learn it and say it correctly. I always ask people to correct me. Um, and I think it's really important. I think it's something that people need to make more of an effort to do. We are a nation of immigrants. We're not a nation that immigrated a while ago and now we're set in stone. Like that's the beauty of our country is that everyone's welcome here and ev everyone should be welcome here. Um, make an effort with people's names. If you're saying it incorrectly, make an effort to say it correctly. I have a student who uh, is going through gender reassignment. Um, so they are now Valerie. Uh, I make an effort to say Valerie. I make an effort to say she, to say her. This goes for, sorry, this is me talking about more than just accents. Um, make an effort with people's pronouns. Make an effort with people's names. Names are important. Um, if your name is Bob and someone calls you Jim, that's kind of fucked up. Uh, and that would upset you. Um, if your name is Kavitha and someone's calling you Becky. Yeah. That's fucked up too, you know? Think of it in its most simplest form, then extrapolate. Empathize. So, uh, Empathize. back to that. You dick. Back to that. People do spell their names out a lot for me. Uh, and a lot of uh, Southeast Asians and Indians learn British English. So when they're spelling their name, they'll say H instead of H. Which, again, I love. When I was practicing my Australian accent, the way I learn an accent is I say the alphabet over and over again. So I, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, V, W, X, Y, Z. They always say Z a lot, too. And then I'll say the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. But I will hit each syllable because the reason accents sound um fake or you can tell someone's not really doing the accent whether you're getting the sounds right it's because you're using the wrong cadence um so i'll be the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog and so finding the different cadences and figuring out different way to say the same word which we do all the time um that's my little acting master class. My little yeah, accent little master, master class. class again. Ooh, even though I don't do accents that well, but that's how I get better. Um, so, yes, accent work. I was so excited. Um, we're definitely going to put some videos of Eric Singer. Uh, we might just mute them so you can just look at him. <laughs> just watch his gorgeous fluffy hair. It's not fluffy. It's just so much volume. Much volume. Um, so yeah, sorry. I realized I was talking very fast and very excited. Um, because it's one of my favorite topics. Big old nerd. Big old nerd. Big old nerd. On the Great Big Bummer Show. The Great Big Bummer Show. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Great Big Bummer Show. We, you can find us here on Tuesdays, but not for long because this is the second to last episode of the season. So we'll catch you next week with our finale. Uh, we got... We, we got, you know, send us questions, corrections, suggestions to sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Check out our new website, sharedhistorypodcast.com. All the links to merch and, and Patreon shit are there. You can uh, follow us at SharedPod. 
for just a lot of Eric Singer content. At SharedPod on Instagram and Twitter, thus begins our mad bid to get Eric Singer on the podcast. I would die. A very weird, a very weird specific thing that both of us are very, very, very nerdy about. Like one specific accent and dialect coach who has a few YouTube videos. Uh, fantastic. Oh God, I want next time somebody's like Natalie, who's your who's your celebrity hall pass? I want to be like. Eric Singer. Eric Singer. <laughs> uh, now he'll never come on. Uh, that's all. That's all we've got for you today. Go learn some accents and learn some contextual history about Ukraine. Until next time. Share, Share you later. Broadsheet Radio.